After feeding 5,000 people with five barley loaves and two small fish, Christ told his disciples to collect all that remained, that none be lost. Having fed the hungry multitude with physical bread, Christ also fed them the bread of life. His words were to be remembered, contemplated and shared, and no fragment of truth was to be left behind. I'm Laura. And I'm Bill, Laura's father. And this is Gathered Fragments. In the previous episode, we spoke about righteousness by faith. Faith in God's word, his promises and his love. Yet in light of the current state of our world, and the fact that before Christ returns, the world will be plunged into a time of trouble such as never before, it is inevitable that fear should arise. So my question is, how do we manage this fear so that it doesn't triumph our faith? Yes, thank you, Laura. It's a very important question, especially for the last days when the Lord says a time of tribulation that has never been seen before. And I think this question is particularly important because Paul talks about in 2 Timothy 4.8, he says, Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them that love his appearing. When Paul says that the Lord will give a crown to all them that love his appearing, he's talking about those that want Jesus to return, who are looking forward to it, who are praying for it. And that's what Peter says as well in 2 Peter 3.12. He says, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of the Lord. I think for some of us, there is this issue because we want this world of sin to be over. We want suffering to end. We want to see our children in heaven. But in a sense, we don't want Jesus to return yet because we're afraid of the trouble that has to take place beforehand. And yet we know that we can't think that way because of the verses I've just read. When the Bible says that there will be a time of trouble such as never before, it means it. Yeah. There is reason to be afraid and not even just for the persecution of ourselves as adults, but mm. the trouble that may come upon our children is the greatest fear. So how do we navigate this? Yeah, Laura, that's true what you said. And um, I think the Lord's words in the, on the mount are particularly important when we, when we consider these things. For example, in Matthew 6, the Lord said, And why take ye forth for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And again, in verse 31 of Matthew 6, he says, Therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Wherever we shall we be clothed? And then he gives us this admonishment. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for, for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. So I know it's easy to say, but the Christian has to anchor his faith in Christ and not take thought or concern or worry or anxiety for, for these things but one day at a time. For example, the trials that come upon us, when they come, God gives us sufficient grace and and strength to overcome them as they come. But to needlessly be concerned with them before they come is simply to actually lack faith, lack trust in God. We don't even know if we'll be alive at that time. But to study these things, absolutely, very important. We saw with um, Rahab and the thief, 
we saw how they exercised the little faith they had and how it changed their destiny. Hmm. But just going back to my question, Jesus does tell us all these things in Matthew 24 for a reason because he doesn't want us to be naive about it. Absolutely. He says that. He actually says those very things, that you be not offended. Mm. He says that many times in, in John's Gospel, chapter 16, of well, as well he says it. And they are frightening. You know, the things yeah. he talks about are frightening. So when he says, ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars, see that ye be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. That's not even the end of it. But he says, be not troubled. It's almost like someone's telling you all these awful things are going to take place, but don't worry about it. <laughs> and maybe he's saying that because they have to happen. So there's no use dwelling on them yeah. because they must come to pass. Well, and They're the, going to happen. You well, can't the, change it. You know, in John 16, verse, of course, this is that night of the upper room and they've left the upper room at this point. They're in Gethsemane. And he says, these things have I spoken unto you, but you should not be offended. And he goes on to give them some more warnings of things that come to the disciples. But that's the reason, that you've been not offended. In other words, when these things do happen, I've already told you beforehand, so you can be prepared for them. Otherwise, it'd be very easy for a person to give up their faith when they're crushed with certain circumstances that they fear of death itself. But the fact that they've been warned that these things will take place and that Christ is with them, and he'll give them a mouth to speak at that time, etc. If they've been imprisoned or brought before the, the, the rulers, that's going to strengthen them at that time. They were told beforehand. So this is why, of course, he's told us these things. And also that we can prepare. That's why in Matthew 24, he talks about the thief would not come if he knows that the people are home. And therefore, it comes as a surprise, as a thief in the night. But so these circumstances leading up to Christ's second coming are not to take us by surprise because he has forewarned us. I guess I have a story I can share in relation to what you said about God giving you strength at the moment that you need it mm. and not necessarily before. Yeah. So when I was pregnant with Finley, I really wanted to have a natural birth and the furthest thing from my mind was a C-section. I was absolutely terrified of it. I wasn't afraid at all of having an unnatural birth, but I was terrified of having a cesarean. and. I won't go into the full story, but I ended up having a cesarean and it was all of a sudden. It was an emergency. I, I can't explain to you how great this fear was. It was my biggest fear. I was not afraid of anything else. This is what I was afraid of. But as they were rolling me in, I was quite calm. Actually, the, the nurses pointed it out. They said, you're very calm. And I had this sense of peace almost. I was mm. okay. Mm. And I wasn't even afraid. I was just, I had accepted it and it was going to happen and I was fine. And then Finley was born and he was crying and screaming and happy and perfect. And it taught me a huge lesson that I don't think I, I would have fully grasped without this experience. experience absolutely. Because yeah. I had this overwhelming fear. And in the moment that I needed strength, I knew 100% that God gave me the strength to go through that. Yeah. And he did. And I had confidence and courage and I, I was brave. Mm. And um, I'm not naturally a brave person. So God does give you yeah. strength in the moments that you need it. And they, they, those experiences are valuable because like you're saying now, it's something you remember and it fortifies you for whatever is ahead as yeah. well. But 
Yes, and in fact, when I do think about, you know, those questions that I said at the beginning, because they are a reality to me, I am afraid mm. of the future and the events that are to take place before Christ returns. But when I remember that experience, I can have faith that God will give me the strength to go through those times ahead because I know that he's given me the strength in the past. Absolutely. You have to trust in God regardless. I mean, you may not be called to go through that last events of this earth's history. Um, there's a beautiful promise given in Isaiah 57. It's actually a question. It's a beautiful promise God gives in Isaiah 57 in verse 1. The righteous perisheth, and no man layeth it to heart. And merciful men are taken away, none considering that the righteous is taken away from the evil to come. Yeah. This is, again, a beautiful promise from God that throughout all time, not just at the end of the world, but you may have little ones, you may have women, you may have others who just do not have the strength at that time, and God will lay them to rest. And he actually says there that they consider it not. Or what some may even question. Yeah. Some may even question, why would the Lord do this? He's doing that to save them from the evil to come. Mm. And laying, as we saw, laying to rest, he's, he's putting them to sleep. Yeah, he shall enter into peace. They shall yeah. rest in their beds. Mm, beautiful, beautiful. So God has, he knows each one of us, and he knows who will endure and who he's, who he will lay to sleep and to peace. So. Mm. And there's that other promise where Jesus says, he won't let you to be tempted above that you're, you're able. Where yeah, is that? First Corinthians ten thirteen. But with the temptation, offer a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. It's a beautiful promise. This is talking about temptations which are generally negative, but I think it can also be applied to oh, certainly, certainly. Uh, hard experiences. Certainly. I mean, look at the disciples after the resurrection. They had such a courage. You know, they were brought before the Sanhedrin and warned and threatened, and yet they had such a courage to stand before them and, and say, like Peter and John, whether this be right in the sight of God, judge ye, for we cannot but speak of the things we've seen and heard, you know. And so... Mm, and the stories of martyrs singing while they're yeah, dying. Yeah. And this is what it means as well when we're talking about having faith in the promises. It's Absolutely. But does this just happen overnight? We've already learned some wonderful things about faith, but another aspect we haven't really touched on yet, which I think is the most important about faith, is that faith is an experience. It's not a one-off or it's just someone's, you know, endowed with some great faith. Uh, not that these things aren't possible, incidentally, but by and large, people with great faith have had a great experience with God. You know, it says in Romans 1.17 that we, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Very important principle, that one. Your faith grows. It's supposed to go from, from a small faith, a measure that God's given us to greater faith. And how does that happen? You know, Romans 12.3, it says that every man's given a measure of faith. We've seen that in the past. Every man. And that faith we're given, we can either allow it to grow or it'll fade away and we'll actually become unbelievers. What is it that makes that faith grow? Well, talking about the Christian, of course. When we read God's Word, we don't read God's Word like we read any other book or like we study any other subject. This is a mistake a lot of people make. Even great scholars can make this mistake. The one thing everyone should, would agree with and, and should never forget, the Bible and Christian religion is about one thing. I've heard people tell me it's about culture, it's about tradition, it's about knowledge. It's, not, it's about one thing, your salvation. If it does not accomplish that, it has failed. 
the gospel won't fail, but it has failed in, in, in achieving what God desires in your, for your life. Mm. It's about saving you eternally. Of course, transforming your life now, absolutely. Without that, you cannot be saved, but that's the most important thing we need to remember what the Bible's about. So what I'm getting at is when you read the Bible, by all means, you can read it for knowledge, history of Israel, etc., and prophecies, interesting. But it will not profit you if you don't apply what you learn. But the person who seeks to read the Bible because they want to know God, of course, the Spirit of God is, is, is drawing them and prompting them. They feel guilty for their sins. They feel the need for repentance. They feel the need for something that this world doesn't offer them. This is the Spirit of God. And this is when you're studying the Bible this way because the Spirit of God's prompting you. And, and it's showing to you the things in your life that are wrong, etc. This is how we have to study the Bible, regardless of the knowledge we have or what degree we may have. Then, as we read whatever it is we're reading, we learn truth. The first thing we must do is accept it. Accept that truth. And if we accept that truth, the next thing we must do is apply it in our lives. Very important. You know, our very podcast is called Gathered Fragments. And when you remember that story, the fragments that were left of the bread, the Lord said they gathered them up that none be lost. Now we know that that bread represented the word of God that came down from heaven, or Christ and his word. And when the Lord says they gathered them up that none be lost, and this is the fragments, he's talking about not just the great things in his word, but also the, the things that we may seem, that we may feel are not important. Every word of God is pure. And there's a shield to them that put their trust in him, says in Proverbs 30. Verse 6, we often will bypass smaller things or what we deem as smaller things or fragments to want to know the deep things of God, but that's not how it works. It's as God leads you at the level you are at and as you understand things and learn and apply them, then he shows you deeper things of his word. It's not the other way around. Let me give an example. We can all identify with this to some degree. A person who comes from the world and has developed certain habits, let's say it's drinking, or let's say it's um, smoking, or some other unhealthy habit, not necessarily a crime in this world, but nonetheless an unhealthy habit, it's you know, destroying the body temple, destroying the ability to discern spiritual things. I'm sure every Christian would have a, has a testimony how they've overcome certain things in their lives. And they're always basic things at first. And particularly God shows you in this area things that we must abstain from, and as I said, we can all identify with that. But what led to that? It led to them reading the Word of God, maybe attending a church, seeing things in their lives that are not compatible with holy living, and then through claiming the promises of God and through prayer and abstinence and, and, and through faith, overcoming those things. And so what, what, what's happened to that measure of faith they had for accepting the Word of God and whatever that, that subject was? applying it in their lives and through faith in God's word and his promises, they had the victory. And that's called the victory of faith. I used to drink. I was never a drinker, a great drinker, but I did drink. In fact, I had a wine cellar. I used to collect some of the most expensive wines and sell them a certain way. And I used to enjoy a glass of wine at dinner with my wife. Now you couldn't tempt me with wine in, in, in any way. It just doesn't have any temptation whatsoever for me. In fact, I, I shun it. The same with cigarettes or other things. And I'm sure, like I said, this is something anyone could identify with. And again, people may say, well, you don't have to be a Christian to, to overcome certain habits. And that's true. But I'm, I'm talking about how your faith grows in God's word. 
therefore grows in your faith grows in him when greater trials come. That's how it begins. Learning truth, accepting it, and then the decision comes, will you apply it in your life? And if you do, your faith is stronger and you're going from faith to faith. You're starting to overcome. And as you look back, you can see that. I once was a, a slave to this habit or to this one or to these things, but now they no longer appeal to me. And you can look back not to boast, but to see how God's working in your life and strengthening you. Mm. And so your faith is not fading away, but growing. You know, the scripture says, make not provision for the flesh. It means, exactly what it says, it means do not plan, do not have thoughts towards the flesh or towards the selfish life, but make no provision for those things, you know. Whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are honest, etc. to be any virtue, you know, think on these things. So, we know this as Christians, this is, this is how God's directing us and leading us to honest, healthy living, holy, faithful living. Yeah, I often think as well about when Jesus said, if your eye causeth you to sin, pluck mm. it out. To me, I think of it all the time. If, for example, someone has a habit of, you know, they watch TV all the time and they're watching things that they feel they shouldn't be watching but they can't help themselves, well, Jesus' instruction here would be well, get rid of the TV. Yeah. That's what don't make provision That's for sin means. Good example, yes. Yeah. And like the person who has a inclination toward drink, you wouldn't go to, I heard a preacher once say, and it, was, it resonated, he said, you wouldn't go to a pub to buy your lemonade. Yeah. Or your glass of water, obviously. And the very smell of the place could spark those old habits, mm. obviously. So, yeah, make no provision to go or do, be tempted by those things, absolutely. Yeah, and well, if you have to take, take drastic measures like chucking out the TV, then do it because yes. that's what Jesus said. Like yes. pluck out your eye. He didn't mean that literally, but take drastic measures to yes. ensure that you're not going to fall. Mm. But the beautiful thing is those things will become hateful to you. They will not be a temptation. That's what the victory of faith is. You can't be a Christian for 20 years and still struggle in some area where you were at the beginning. That's ridiculous. Something's clearly not right. Mm. But step by step, through prayer and, and study of God's word and claiming his promises, through right exercise of the will, these things, you not only overcome them, but they'll become hateful to you. You don't want to do them. You won't want to lie. In fact, when the thought enters your mind, immediately there's that Resistance. of the spirit. No, no, you know, because before it's, it's lying today is so normal. It really is normal. The exaggeration is normal, but that a Christian becomes sensitive to these things and that alarm goes off immediately in the mind and you, and you check yourself and you don't go. So what I'm saying is those things don't have a hold over you and that's how your faith is growing. Mm. Now, to stand as you were saying in those last days, a person's going to have to have a strong faith in God. And again, it comes back to, as I was saying, having had an experience, now not necessarily, I'm not saying this is for every individual, but nonetheless, for the majority, they've had an experience with God. They've seen how he's never let them down. They've seen how they've stood for him. He's honored them. He says in 1 Samuel 2.30, I think it is, he that honoreth me, I will honor. And so I was saying how when you study God's word, humbly and honestly to want to know the truth, and you learn the truth, you accept it. As you accept it, then you have to apply it. Otherwise, it just becomes knowledge. In fact, not only it becomes knowledge, it will condemn you. So you learn the truth. The Spirit convicts you it's a truth. You have to make a conscious decision to accept it and then to apply it in your life. 
Now, who's going to disagree with that? I mean, that's absolutely obvious. But now, when it becomes a matter where it's a great challenge and a great trial, let's say it's a Christian already, and you've already taken some of these steps of faith and you've already grown in faith to a degree, which is commendable. And now let's say it comes to the point where at church and you've been studying and you've learned the truth about the Sabbath, the fourth commandment, and you go to a Sunday church. Now here you are, you've already been a Christian for quite a period of time and you've been faithful. Look how great this trial becomes now. Remember, you learn the truth, you're convicted of it, you have to accept it and then apply it. Look what this person, a brother or sister, is now facing in this situation. The Sabbath is a very challenging truth. They may lose their job. They may have problems in their their family. It's very challenging. You've seen it's the truth. You've actually looked at the objections to it, and you've seen they're not based upon God's word, but on, on history and men's tradition. And now you're faced with doing what you've done all up till now applying it in your life. But now the problem is, as I was saying, it could be your job, it could be your, in your own household, it's certainly going to be in your church because your church doesn't keep Sabbath, doesn't believe in Sabbath, your pastor won't. And so this is a major challenge for you. What do you do? Do you stop at that point? You can stop at that point. Your faith will also stop at that point. It won't grow. It's not some book you're resisting, it's the Spirit of God is showing you. When the Spirit of God convicts you or something, then you, you're called to make a decision. So what does a person do? Of course, as I said before, if he accepts that truth, his faith's going to grow. The trial's going to come with it, of course, great trials. And if he doesn't, he cannot proceed, not in, not in the truth anyway. I think of it as a journey when you come to crossroads and you've been walking upon this, along this journey. It's like, for example, Pilgrim's Progress. Met obstacles along the way, but God's been there with you every time. But then you come to a point where if you are convicted of, I stress this point, convicted of truth, and you choose not to go that way, you're going to start going on a different path. The only way to go back on the path that was leading you before, path of truth, is to go back to where you turned off. Mm. It's very important to understand. So. so it's a serious matter. And of course, the usual objections or your wife might tell you, or your friends at church, your pastor will, will give you certain verses, and your friends will say, but the majority of Christians keep the first day of the week, and etc. And for some people, that might be good enough. But the reality is they are not applying the truth that God showed them in their lives. In fact, I'll end up believing the lies, as, as the Bible says. But notice, for example, you were talking about Matthew 24 before. Mm. Look at verse 9, Matthew 24. Look what Jesus He's warning about the last days and the troubles that would come. And of course, he's warning us, his followers. That's what he says, verse 9. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted, and shall kill you, and ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. So here Christ is describing some of the events right towards just before his second coming. You're going to be delivered up and afflicted. I mean, no one's looking forward to that. You're going to be hated by all nations. Why? Why are they being delivered up? Why are these Christians being delivered up and hated? That's what it says, for my name's sake. In other words, they've stood true to his name. To stand true to Christ means to stand true to what he's taught you. You can't stand true to Christ's name and yet live in disobedience to him, obviously. So they stand true to him. They've honored him, even at the point where 
They've been afflicted, persecuted, and hated. Look at verse 10 now. And then shall many be offended, and shall betray one another, and shall hate one another. Notice now it says, and many shall be offended, and betray one another, and hate one another. Who do you think it's speaking about here? This is not the world. The Christian knows and expects that the world to come against him. Because the things, you know, the things of the world are enmity with God, etc. The many that are offended here, and, be, and what, notice what they're doing? Betraying one another? Mm. He's talking about Christians. There's going to be some who stand firm. They're going to be afflicted, brought before rulers, hated by all nations. And he says, because of that, many are going to be offended. They're going to betray one another. So here you see Christians falling away. That'd be bad enough. They're not standing for Christ's name. But they're betraying fellow brothers and sisters that they once enjoyed sweet fellowship with. It's very sad. Now look at verse 12. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. Again, you see the love of many. He's talking about the love of many for God. The love of many for, for God's truth. It's waxing cold. Betraying one another. Why does this happen? Why do you get to the point when the earth's world is falling apart and suddenly you have some God's faithful ones standing firm, being hated and persecuted, being betrayed by their own brethren, and, and others, the love of many, waxing cold? It happens because they never had the faith to stand at that time because they never put in practice in their lives the truth. And this is what I meant by they the, went the other way on yeah. the crossroads. They walked the wrong way. The difficulties overcome yeah, them. Yeah. And so what, what motivates them now? It's fear. Mm. It's fear. And fear is a very, very powerful motivator. And in this case, you can see that church brethren are now betraying their fellow brothers and sisters and their very love for God is waxed cold. And so it's not a minor, minor thing. And, and those that stand strong, it doesn't mean that they have no fear whatsoever. I mean, some maybe you don't, but oh, no. they don't let it overcome them. Well, look at verse 13. Very important. Look what the Lord says. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. Yeah. Here is the patience of the saints here that keep the commandments of God. Those that endure to the end will be saved. So the Lord's telling you right now, right there, he's telling you, nation rise against nation. Wars, rumors of war, famine, famines, pestilence, hated by all nations for my name's sake, being betrayed by your brethren, love of others being waxing mm, cold. By your mother or father, yeah. children betraying their parents. But he that endures, the only way they can endure to the end is because they have a faith that's, that is fixed upon Christ and even death itself will not, will cannot take it away. They'll endure unto the end. And it's a very trial, in fact, that perfects the character, that purifies the character. God has to allow it to happen because it's through that process mm. that the character is developed and others' character is revealed. For example, you have two close brothers in the church or sisters. They're close, they enjoy sweet fellowship for years, and then you get to this point, betraying one another. Mm. Would that have been seen before? No. No. It couldn't have been predicted. But when the crisis comes, mm. character is revealed. That can, and that's for us. Who am I to preach for others? That is for us. Yeah. We don't know if we'll stand, but what we do know is we stand for God now in whatever he shows us as we read his word. We'll be growing in faith to come when we come to these greater trials to stand for him then mm. and not betray our own brothers and sisters. Yeah. And why do those faithful ones stand? It's because they have faith in 
the God that they believe. And that's why all the other doctrines that we've been studying that reveal yeah. the character of yeah. God are important. And because in 1 John 4.18, it says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear. Mm. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. So, so a person who has gone through these trials... They've also seen magnificent displays That's of God's right. love and protection yes. and mercy Absolutely. and power. Right. And they will be strengthened by that, mm. by that knowledge of who God is and what he's done for them. Absolutely. And that's why doctrine is important. Oh, it's everything because that's what is um, sanctifying you. That is what's edifying you. That is what is developing the character in its simplest terms. A man may not, may not know it's wrong to lie. It's not going to take him long to realize it's wrong to lie when he starts reading the Bible. Mm. And so he will stop. And you'll say, that's a doctrine. It's, it's, it's a truth. It's a commandment. Mm. Um, and we could go on to you know, more sensitive things, but nonetheless, it's through, it's through reading God's word. It's very practical. And as you apply it, it starts to sanctify, transform, and change the character mm. and strengthen your faith. Yeah. So, and so there's that other side as well that maybe we could touch on because even though there's going to be so many calamities and trials and heartaches, there's also going to be magnificent manifestations of power and, and strength and the mm. Holy Spirit, the pouring out of the latter rain like at Pentecost, but in a more greater sense. Yeah, absolutely. So that will be empowering God's people. Oh, certainly. They will, Christ will be performing miracles through them as he did through his disciples. Mm. And those gifts of the Spirit will be will be manifested once again in the church with, with a great uh, testimony and a witness for that for many. Mm. While we're on this point, however, I just want to read two more texts on this. How while some are standing firm and their faith is 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 growing and becoming more and more solid, others are waning, waxing out, waxing cold, and even betraying their brethren. While we're in the gospel, look at John sixteen. I read this verse before, just not long ago, but I only read the verse 1. But now let's read John 16, verse 1 and 2. These things have I spoken unto you, that ye should not be offended. They shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time cometh, that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God's service. Now, of course, this is clearly in reference to when the disciples were being going to be persecuted by the Jewish church, but this is a promise for all time. Mm. But notice who it is that's going to kill God's people. Those that think they're doing God's, God's service. service. They're religious people. These are churches. That's why the Lord said in the last days they'll betray one another. Mm. Your church brethren. A person in the world can't betray you. They're in the world. Yeah. Anyone who can betray you is one who shares the same faith as you. Mm. And the point I'm bringing out is how it's because they never really had uh, made Was, it a habit yeah. of trusting God and going through trials. And the trials came from accepting truth and applying it in their lives. And they mm. wouldn't. And so when... That intellectual comes. knowledge wasn't manifested no. in their lives. And when persecution comes, they're ruled by fear. They're ruled by fear instead of love. And so they'll betray their own brethren. One more text on this, Isaiah 65. I'm sorry, 66 and verse 5. Hear the word of the Lord, ye that tremble at his word. Your brethren that hated you, that cast you out for my name's sake, said, Let the Lord be glorified but he shall appear to your joy, and they shall be ashamed. Remember Matthew 24, it said that you shall be hated by all nations for my name's sake, mm. and many would betray one another, etc. Isaiah is telling us the same thing, the Lord's telling us. Notice it says, hear, hear the word of the Lord. Notice who he's talking about. Those that tremble at his word. 
so important. People do not tremble. I don't mean by that that you've got to be fearful. It means to take it with holy reverence, to take it seriously. It's not just a novel. It's life and death. You've got to tremble at this word. You've got to understand that this is not a game. Nukri says, your brethren that hated you, your brethren that cast you out for my name's sake. And look what they said, let the Lord be glorified. Mm. That's like he said, he that killeth you, think if you do, have got a service. Mm. So we're seeing numerous passages talking about fellow church believers, brothers and sisters, persecuting, killing, casting you out, betraying, and they think they're serving God. Mm. But notice how he says, he shall appear to your joy and they shall be ashamed. Because they did not grow in faith. They did not exercise faith when it was required. And when it comes to the time of distress and, and fear, fear takes hold of them, unfortunately. So with that in mind, going back to that illustration or example I was giving about the Sabbath, here you have a person who's been walking with God and that they come to a point in their, on their journey where they learn the Sabbath truth. And not only learn it, they're convicted of it. In fact, they've tried to get out of the Sabbath. They've read books against it. But there's not one verse in Scripture that does away with the Sabbath. Mm. Not a verse. It's the fourth commandment. It's binding upon them. And it's spoken by God himself. It'll be kept in heaven, Scripture says. And so this person now comes to a point where his faith is going to be really challenged. Now, whenever you come, whatever it may be in the Bible, that you learn. As I was saying before, your responsibility then, of course, is to accept it and then apply it in your life. And, and, and incidentally, when that, when that happens, with every truth, there's going to become a temptation. A temptation to compromise. With that will come thoughts or maybe loved ones. Could be, like I said before, your church minister and others. But there'll be a temptation there that you don't have to. Or... Worse still, to compromise, for example, as I was saying with this about the Sabbath, many could say, look, we can see where you're coming from. We can see that there's good evidence for the Sabbath, but hardly anyone keeps the Sabbath. Almost the entire Christian world keeps Sunday. And this type of reasoning, of course, which is, which is wrong, but nonetheless, this type of reasoning, if you're entertaining compromise, that's going to sound good enough. Because we're talking of hundreds of millions of others who keep that day. And you're not robbing and stealing and doing bad things. You're a good person. So what does it matter? God said, not me. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. In six days thou shalt do all thy work. But the Sabbath is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt do no work, neither do not thy servant, nor thy maid servant, etc. that are in thy house, nor the stranger within thy gates. God said those words. So if you compromise, which is exactly what the great majority will do, and sometimes worse still, deceive themselves into thinking that that's good enough. They cannot proceed, not as far as growing in faith. They can think they can proceed as far as staying in the church and even whatever, but not growing in faith they won't because God just, God just challenged them and they said no to God. They didn't say no to a book. They said no to God. That doesn't mean that he leaves them alone. There's still a small voice of the Spirit may still remind them and speak to them many other times and, and try to draw them back, but... If you compromise, you cannot go forward, and that's when you'll be controlled by fear when these more serious situations can come upon you, and mm. why you can come to the point where you'll betray a loved one or a brother or a sister. So if you remember this principle, you learn a truth. With that truth comes a temptation to compromise or to reject it. 
or you have the victory and you stand, you stand for it. You know what happens if you take a stand? Let's say that the same illustration, but this time the, the brother says, no, this is the truth. I have to stand for God as I have in the past. You know what happens? The trial doesn't go away. In fact, it may get worse. His wife may remonstrate with him. His church will definitely have nothing to do with him. In fact, he'll have to leave. He knows that. He could well lose his job if he's not self-employed or in some, if he's dependent upon a job or he has to work that day. There could be great trials, but he stands. As I said, the trials don't go away, but what happens? You know what happens? His faith is stronger now because he stood for God. And he that honored me, I will honor, the Lord says. And you can apply this with any truth in the Bible. It doesn't matter what it is. The beautiful thing is, when he makes that decision, he receives a power from God. He is empowered. His faith is stronger now. You never had that Sabbath question or whatever the truth may be. It's no longer a challenge anymore. Mm. It's no longer a temptation because he made a decision. The trials may not necessarily go away straight away, but it cannot be a temptation because he chose to be faithful to God and he continues his journey, his journey to holiness, his journey to sanctification, his journey to being faithful, to being among those who endure even unto the end because he's made a habit in trusting in God. So his faith mm. is growing. He's resolute, so yeah. it no longer troubles him about. Yeah. Mm. He refused to compromise. And, you know, we can identify with this ourselves in our own Christian walk. We know of others. I know a brother who, who had this very challenge and church was against him because he was attending a Sunday-keeping church for a while. Family was against him, but he, he stood. And the beautiful thing is, not only did his faith grow, but down the track, his entire family also ended up accepting Sabbath. Hmm. So the beautiful thing is, not only did his faith grow, but his faith rewarded others as well. Because God can bless you. Now, that may not be the case always, but the fact is that God can bless you when you're obeying him. He's going to watch over you. James says, blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life. It's a blessing. We're not mm. to shun it. Yeah, I've got First Peter open at the moment as well, and he says that Jesus Christ has begotten us into a lively hope, to an inheritance incorruptible, and we are kept by the power of God through faith. Mm. Unto salvation. The yeah, power of God, see, through faith. That's oh, the point I was bringing out. Yeah, ready to be revealed in the last time, mm, wherein ye greatly rejoice. Though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, mm. being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honour and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ whom having not seen, ye love. Mm. So there you see again that. Uh, Beautiful passage, that one. Mm. Yeah. The love is a stronger motivator than fear. Certainly, yeah. And you know what I was saying earlier about that man? It didn't end there, and it never ends. He that endureth unto the end shall be saved. It may end, of course, when you die or when the Lord returns, but you're continually growing, growing in faith. That brother went on to face another dilemma. He was happy. His family had even joined him, and he found the Sabbath-keeping church. And then a few years later, again, he was challenged by the Word of God because he came to see that the Trinity was a false teaching. And his church it was a fundamental belief of the church. But he saw that it had nothing to do with it. Well, in fact, it's, it's totally pagan. And he saw that God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Again, he's challenged. What does he do? You see, 
if he had never taken that first step with the Sabbath, he would never be in this situation anyway. This is so important. What, what do you think people were rejecting truth for? You think they don't know, but this is going to lead them in a pathway, more trials, more challenges. Mm. They won't admit that to themselves, but that's why, that's why they shrink at it. But they don't realize the blessing because God's leading you. And he's leading you out of the world to a heavenly home. And so that first trial, he received the victory of faith. He was also rewarded with his family joining him. But then another trial comes. Now he finds himself in the church of Sabbath keepers. They're his family. They were actually praying for him. They were studying with him when they showed him the Sabbath. And they were by his side when he was being persecuted by his church. And now he finds that he, he cannot believe like they do. And now they persecute him. And then he's cast out of that church. But what does he do? Does he compromise? Does he say, well, this is a doctrinal belief of the church, has been for a long time? No. He does what he, had, what he always is, has a responsibility to do. And, and in fact, that's not the right word. It's not a responsibility. It's what he has to do because it's what he loves. He loves God's word. He loves God. Mm. He stands because, of course, more than one reason. He stands because he's seen how God has led him to this point. He saw how God led him more and more light, how God has never left him. Now, what do you see? This is where many of us, we don't realize, but we, we can be our own worst enemies. Honestly, what I'm about to ask now, this question, I could ask it to every Christian in the world, and I don't think there'd be one Christian who would deny what I'm saying, not one. If I was to ask you, who do you trust more? Your family? your church, your pastor, your denomination, or God? Everyone would say God. Yeah, every single one. Well, then why then when God convicts you of a truth, he convicts you, his spirit shows you, he answers the objections, why then don't you stand for him? Why do you stand for your church, for your family, and your brethren? When you, you yourself have just acknowledged to me that God's the only one that cannot lie, that God's the only one that you can trust fully. Mm. You see, we, we deceive ourselves. Mm. And what you were saying about it not even being a responsibility, it is no. what you must do absolutely That's it's the... what you're motivated to do yeah. it's what you desire to do you cannot even entertain the thought of putting anything else before him it's true conversion it's being born of the spirit the spirit's convicting you you cannot but follow that spirit it's the spirit of christ so like that's what i was thinking when luther said here i st- here i stand i can do no other if you want to kill me kill me but i can do no other here i stand this is the truth and i have to stand for it and martyrs throughout the history, throughout the Reformation, to the end. That's what motivates them. They have to stand for their Saviour regardless of the consequences. And more than a duty, it's their, their very soul. So again, within this illustration, what I was showing is he takes his stand again, and once again there's temptation. Once again there's a temptation to compromise, there's a challenge, there's a trial. But he stands, and what happens? He learns a more beautiful truth, a greater truth, and it, and it opens the Bible like never before to him. And the love of God like never before. The more you accept truth and apply it in your life, the more you see the character of God revealed. And the more you're drawn toward him. It's beautiful. And yes, the trials come, but his faith has also grown. And he'll look back upon those trials as, as great victories. And those, those are not trials anymore, as I was saying earlier, with the, with the person who liked to drink or, or, or a cigarette or in certain entertainment. They're not trials anymore. The person who kept the Sabbath. Sabbath a trial? Sabbath is the greatest blessing that a Christian can experience, and that's what God ordained it to be. The greatest blessing a Christian and a family can experience is a Sabbath, when you leave this world behind for 24 hours. Anyway, what is the key to all this? We can saying it's learning the truth and obeying it, yes, but 
what is actually the very behind that you touched on with that passage you read? The very key is that they have a love for the truth. That's the difference. It's not just a knowledge of truth, but a love for it. If you have a knowledge for truth, you will compromise. If you have a love for it, you will not. If you have a love for your wife or your children, there's nothing in this world that will make you compromise that. Nothing. You'll give your life for it. But the knowledge is, is not going to help you. Um, and that's why you grow from faith to faith. But knowledge, in a biblical sense, is what leads to love. That's certainly true. As we gain more knowledge, we gain more of the love, understand the love of God. But the love of God, to experience that, that's a spiritual thing. That's the born-again experience. It's not something that is theology, mm. but something that is just works from the inside. And particularly why a doctrine like the Trinity can be so contrary to the gospel and the love of God. So the, the, the key to growing in faith is having a love for the truth, because then when the challenge comes, your love for the truth is greater than compromising or whatever the trial that is that that truth will bring in your life. That's why, why I wanted to go to those passages we saw in Matthew about brethren betraying one another in Isaiah, casting you out of the synagogue, in John 16 where they kill you and think they're doing God a service. These people did not have a love for the truth. They may have had a love for their church. They may have had a love for their doctrines, whatever but they'll persecute and kill you or cast you out or betray you. Of course, their love for whatever it was, which is worldly-based, denominational, whatever it is, it's worldly-based, was greater than their love for God. And that's why they become enemies in the end. In other words, and when the situation gets serious, they're motivated by fear instead of love, and therefore they will persecute their brethren. You know, Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. Those who stay faithful to him They'll reveal their love to him by obeying him, all his commandments. That'll be revealed in their life, of course. And this is the ones who go from faith to faith and endure because they will not compromise. They just want to stand for the Lord and whatever he shows them. Mm. Look at First Corinthians 13 for a moment, the love chapter, as it's called. The King James says charity, but I think the word love is agape, which is uh, way, way deeper. Even though we use the King James, I think the love is by far the more correct translation. See, the apostle says, if I give all my, sell all my goods to give to the poor and if, I, and if I give my body to be burned and I have not love, it profiteth me nothing. Love suffers long, is kind. Love envy if not, love wanteth not itself, is not puffed up, does not behave itself unseemly, not easily provoked, thinketh no evil. Then he says, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. I believe the reason why God has a people at the end of time that stand for him and endure whatever this world can throw at them, even at the cost of their lives, is because their love for God and for his truth rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. You know, remember Jesus' prayer in, Matthew, in John 17, sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. And so they've been on this path of following Christ, path of sanctification, obeying his word, obeying his truth. And more and more the character of God and Christ, the Father and the Son, is revealed in their lives. More and more their life is lived out in their lives. That's how they can endure at that time. That's how their character is transformed. Now we've been talking about faith, right? Here is Paul, the whole magnificent chapter of 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. Look how he ends it. Look at the last, the last thing he says, verse 13. And now abideth faith, hope, Love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. 
Now, of course, we we accept that, right? We believe that, but this could almost be a cliche even. Mm. Everyone knows this verse. This is not a cliche. He means it when he says this. Now, we all understand hope. Hope is what's made us Christians. God instilled in us a hope for a better life, mm. a different, another world, another life. You know, There's no more sin, suffering, and death. And that hope gives us faith. And it's our faith as it grows that we will see that hope. We see that hope now, but one day we're going to experience it if we're faithful. And so we, we understand how important those virtues are, but Paul makes the point of saying the greatest of these is love because if that faith is not motivated by love, it's going to fail. And those brethren that are betraying one another, they're casting you out of the synagogue, killing you and thinking they're doing God a service. They have not love. This is what destroys Islam and Buddhism and, and Hinduism and, and karma and all these faiths. It's what destroys them. They're not based on love. In karma, you don't help someone that's begging because mm-hmm. that's their karma. In Islam, you're to convert infidels, even by the sword. That's not love. But, and, and of course, as we know, they have no saviour. But the true gospel, now abide of these three, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. The one whose faith is motivated by love for God, they will stand for him even if their church tells them differently, even if their family tells them differently. They mm. cannot but live for him and want to serve him and, and be faithful. And this is what God designed for us because Absolutely. we have the promise in Second Timothy 1.7, for God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. So you can recall this promise if you are afraid. And you, mm. we know David mm. said, what time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. Mm. So even if you are afraid, you can have trust Absolutely. and faith. Oh, David, wonderful. Exactly. And that, that spirit of love and power can, can triumph that spirit of fear. Yeah. You, know, you just spoke about David there. Reminded me of the 27th Psalm, one of my favorite Psalms. I could almost read the entire Psalm. It's not a long one, but notice verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? See what he just said. He's the strength of my life. Whom shall I fear? And again, he says it twice. The Lord is my salvation. Whom shall I fear? He's the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Now, remember how I was saying that faith's an experience? Mm. Why does he say that? Look at the next verse. When the wicked, even mine enemies and my foes, came upon me to eat up my flesh, they stumbled and fell. You see? Yeah. He's, he's reflecting. This is why he can say he's my strength. Well, who shall I be afraid? Because he, as he looks back, he saw how God was with him. Mm. And now he looks forward. Look at the next verse. He's looking future now. Though an host should encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war should rise against me, in this will I be confident. And we're about to read what that is. That, makes, that gives him that hope. But the point I want to make there is that he had a, a living faith, David. He had an experience from a young boy with God. And no matter what came against him, Saul hunting him as a, as a prey, and there were hosts and camp against him, he knew that God was his salvation, that God would protect him, preserve him. And, you know, remember when he challenged Goliath, was he afraid? A young boy. No. King Saul, a mighty man, etc. But David wasn't afraid. He was a shepherd boy. But remember what he said? The Lord who delivered me from the poor of the lion the paw of the bear and the mouth of the lion shall deliver me from this uncircumcised Philistine. Mm. He had an experience, even as a young boy, trusting God and God delivered him and he was not fearful of some giant. 
mm. with armor and a spear. And that's what he's saying here. And what was it that gave him? And that's this hope? why we're not to shun those experiences. But absolutely. And look, look what it was. Look, look why he says, even if a host were to camp against him, he will not fear. This is the third time he says, "I will not fear. I will not be afraid." Look why. Verse this, four. Yeah, because he says, "In this will I be confident." Look at verse four. One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. Love for God was greater than any fear the world could bring upon him. The one thing he was confident, the one thing he desired, was that he would behold the Lord's face, that he would dwell in his house. He knew that promise was for him. And that's, what made, that's why he could stay faithful to God regardless. And look what he says now in verse 5. For in, in time the of trouble, time of trouble he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret of his tabernacle shall he hide me. He shall set me up upon a rock. He signs off in verse 14. Oh, before that, look at verse 10. This is a great, I love this one, my favorite psalm. One of them anyway. Look at verse 10. When my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take See, me up. Not that they did, but he's saying, regardless, regardless of what this world does to me, an army encamp against me, my enemy, they'll stumble and fall, my, my, my mother and father, the Lord will take me up. Mm. One thing I've desired, and that is to behold the Lord's face, the beauty of the Lord, and to dwell in his temple. Mm. Yeah. And that's why he says, look at the last two verses, beautiful promises. Look, look at verse 13. Yeah. I, I would have fainted. Unless I had believed mm. to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, Wait I say, on the Lord. He that shall endure to the end shall be saved. You see? Mm. This was an experience. That endure, wait, yeah, patience of the saints. Absolutely. That's a principle that God absolutely. is trying to tell us. Absolutely. Wait on the Lord. Wait, I say. Yeah. But you see, this was, this was not, he didn't wake up one morning and have that faith. That was a life from a youth, from yeah, a young man. It was cultivated over being time. Being faithful to God. Now, we know David did wrong as well, but he was faithful to God. And he had that faith to stand before Goliath, to stand before armies, the great King David. He had an empire, mm. you know, at his height. Mm, childlike faith. Mm. And it conquered the fears. His love for God was greater than his fear of this world. But for many, their faith will wax cold and their fear will be greater. And they'll actually, what did the Lord say? The love of many will wax cold. The mm. love for God of many is going to wax cold. So it's one or the other. And we can start building today. By accepting what God's word says, when you're convicted, and not when someone else convicts you, but when you're convicted by God's spirit, and you're truly honest and humble with yourself about it, with trembling, you know, hear the word of the Lord, ye that tremble, that tremble at his word, then apply it in your life. Don't worry about the consequences. God's trying to lead you to a heavenly home. Hmm. Be faithful and watch the victory of faith grow. Watch how he blesses you more and rewards you more and rewards others around you because of your faith. Until, like David, you can say, one thing I've desired, and this all I'll be confident, I will behold the beauty of the Lord and dwell in his temple. And this is the victory that um, we can start developing right now, moment by moment, simply by applying his truth in our lives, regardless of what stage you're at or who you are. And don't allow reputation and these silly things to, to stop that. Who cares who you are and what you've taught and what you've preached or whoever you may be? It doesn't matter. If God shows you something, be like a young child, like you just said. Stand for him. Declare him. Declare his truth. 
let the consequences be what they are. But you're standing for God and he's going to honor you. Amen. Mm. Thank you for listening. God bless. God bless.